So we're kicking off a new series today. As you see, everything happens for a reason and other lies I've loved. We love some lies. We love some little white lies. Per- perhaps um, no one loves a good lie more than a parent. I thought about doing like open mic where you could like share the lies that your parents told you when you were growing up. Uh, but here are just a few perhaps you've heard. I told my son, who's afraid of clowns, that ice cream trucks were driven by clowns. (laughs) He heard that music and sprinted to his room every time. It's brilliant, right? It's brilliant. They don't sell replacement batteries for that toy. (laughs) When we went to the store, my mom used to say, every time you touch something, a kitten dies. That is terrible. (laughs) My father always said the animals on the side of the road were just taking a nap since the road was warm. (laughs) My dad said Pulp Fiction was a documentary about oranges, so I wouldn't want to watch it. (laughs) My dad told me oil stains on the street were little kids that got run over because they didn't hold anyone's hand (laughs) crossing the street. Uh, lies that we love. You know, my parents lied to me, actually. Um, They lied to me by saying I was good at the piano. I was not good at the piano. I took piano lessons for like eight years, and I was terrible at piano. My sister, on the other hand, um, she is a nationally certified music instructor today. She played the piano famously. She... uh, just kept going, and she today in Wisconsin, she lives in Wisconsin, she has like 160 piano students come into her home every month. She's amazing. And um, I don't know, she would touch the keys, and it just was like magic, and no matter how hard I blew into them, it, it never, it was never the same result. Okay, today we're talking about lies, semantics, and a river. So this month, we're looking at lies that Christians tend to love, lies that are kind of woven into the fabric of our theology sometimes. We say things like, the safest place to be is the center of God's will. Then you read all these stories of like people in the Bible, actually the center of God's will does not, it seems awfully dangerous for them often. We say things like, God helps those who, what? Help themselves. I love that lie. That's such a a great little lie. Um, These are just lies, right, that we swim in, and we don't even really think about them as lies. They're just sort of in the fabric of how we think until someone points it out. Um, like the lie of our beautiful stained glass that says apparently Jesus was a Dutch man. (laughs) These lies kind of, you know, they help us feel better about ourselves, feel better about our world. They help us get through the day. Here's the problem with little theological lies. They obscure what is real. And what is true? And we are people who are invited to live into what is real. 
The worst thing about little theological lies, little lies that Christians love, is that they obscure the reality of Christ, who said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we're going to live into what is real, we need to see through the lies that we so easily adopt, let them go, and embrace the good and beautiful reality and realities of life in the kingdom of God. So today we're going to talk about a little lie called everything happens for a reason. Now I realize many of you love this phrase. I kind of love this phrase too. Our culture loves this phrase. I was actually in a little boutique up in Frisco in the mountains, had home decor, had one of these big like signs with a bunch of quotes, and I'm like reading all the quotes. Oh, so beautiful. Right in the middle. Everything happens for a reason. We love this one. We so want this one to be true. It's a phrase that we hear usually in moments of personal tragedy. Like when you suddenly lose a job or receive a bad diagnosis, someone will say, everything happens for a reason. It's supposed to be a comfort. Kate Bowler wrote a book by the title of this series called Everything Happens for a Reason, Other Lies I Love, Loved. And uh, what she recounts is how people were trying to encourage her when she was diagnosed with cancer. She said this, most of their explanations were reassurance that even this is a secret plan to improve me. God has a better plan. This is a test and it will make you stronger. The motive behind this kind of phrase is good. It's well-intentioned. But the theology is a little suspect. It sounds true on the surface, but may we not be people who live on the surface. May we be courageous enough to look at the beliefs that we hold that may not be what the scriptures teach. The idea behind this little phrase is this. Everything happens for a reason. In other words, if you search hard enough, you will know why everything happens in your life. Try telling that to Job in the Bible. He never knew why many things happened to him. There was failure, there was loss, and here's the thing, in life, failure and loss are an inevitable part of living. And the phrase makes it seem like failure and loss, those are not normal parts of life. So if you experience failure or loss, um, there must be a good reason, because that's not normal. But if we accept that failure and loss, they are actually a part of life on this earth then maybe we could say instead, everything happens, period. And then turn our attention to something other than finding the reason for each and everything we face. Now, we all know that there's a lot of things that are not the way they are supposed to be in this world. This isn't the way the world should be. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, True Spirituality, says, that, says it this way. Each of us is not what God made us to be. 
beyond each of us as individuals, human relationships are not what God meant them to be. Beyond that, nature is abnormal. To say it another way, there is much in history now which should not be. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. In the beginning, God created a perfect garden. And when sin and shame entered the world, all sorts of brokenness came with it. Of course, there are also many wonderful things about this world. I mean, I stand at the base of Mount Royal in Frisco, and I am like, it is a wonderful world. This is amazing. We live in a state where you just take it in. It's, it's incredible. Like this, there are so many times when you just stand and marvel and you say, this is such a wonderful world. We have a song about it, don't we? Trees of green, red roses too, friends shaking hands saying, how do you do? It can be a wonderful world. And followers of Christ ought to enjoy life. And the truth is, it also can be an awful world. Like, ask the people of Syria right now whose lives have been torn apart by senseless violence and fighting. Ask Somalian parents who have no food to feed their starving children. Ask anybody who is walking out of family court or welfare office or a funeral home, is it a wonderful life? This is a wonderful world, and it's a frustrated world. Both. It's a wonderful world, it's a frustrated world. This world is creation in decay. It's a world that is in bondage, groaning to be released from pain. That is where we live, this side of eternity. What happens is we know the world is not the way that it should be, and we want it better, and then we go, and there's a loving God who's in control of everything. So we say, surely then there has to be a reason for each and every personal tragedy we encounter. Like our rational brains just insist upon that answer. Our rational brains kick in with a need to know, how can I tie this situation up in a pretty little package with a pretty little bow to make sense of it? Everything happens for a reason. I must know. And if we cannot explain something, we will not accept something. And yet the scriptures teach us, like, God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And if I insist that everything happens for a reason... I spend my life searching for reasons, and I am essentially attempting to know more than God. But God is infinite, and I am finite, and I cannot know everything. Sometimes we'll say things like, you know, God closes one door so he can open another, and we think like, the suffering we endure, it must be way, like God's way of bringing us to a better place. And then we define better by like better, we think that that means better is going to mean healed. He's bringing us to a better place. That means healed. That means employed. That means not weak, not alone, not poor, not hurt. But he, 
it creates a problem in turn because what happens when God doesn't give us the better that we are so sure he's bringing? The news recently carried a story of this kind of tension. I'm just going to tell you at the outset, I have debated whether to share this story with you or not. I do not share it by way of judgment or critique, but I want us to think theologically. And I think that the tension of this story reveals something that we all are tempted because of the culture that we swim in. We're, you know, tempted to get caught up in. Um, This news story uh, captured my attention recently. There was a two-year-old girl who actually stopped breathing. She died just before Christmas this past year. And her mother is a worship leader at a megachurch, and so the story gained a lot of media attention and articles written about it and whatnot. Um, Because she went on social media and prayed that her two-year-old would be resurrected. This is what she said. We're asking for bold, unified prayers from the global church to stand with us in belief that he will raise this little girl back to life. Her time here is not done. And it is our time to believe boldly and with confidence wield what King Jesus paid for. (sighs) Oh, it's like, that is heartbreaking, right? No, like, room for judgment, like, whatsoever. Here is what I want us to talk about, though, in this story It's not to be critical of grief. My heart breaks for that loss. I have no idea what that is like to walk in her shoes. Here is what, so set that aside. Here's what I want us to discuss here. There is a theology that creates a sort of certainty Praying for a miracle? Absolutely valid. I think the challenge is this. There are certain times when we are encouraged to have a sort of name it and claim it relationship with the infinite God. A name it and claim it theology has developed. It is high on certainty and low on mystery. And I just wonder, how can we pray bold prayers and be surrendered to a God we cannot control? How can we both pray bold prayers and be surrendered to a God you cannot control and you do not always understand. Richard Rohr says, you know, the opposite of faith, isn't, it's not doubt, it's, it's certainty, right? 
but Christianity in America has been like co-opted by an, a rational mind. It says we can understand all things. Can we? There's, of course, a scripture that's often quoted to support the idea that everything happens for a reason. And that scripture is Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, it looks like scriptural proof that God is going to work everything out for us. But those who have prayed for deliverance from suffering and didn't receive it in the way that they thought, that verse kind of seems like a lie. Sometimes we take this verse and we sort of like turn it into a mantra and then examine every suffering to find like what is the real meaning behind this tragedy. This verse it is wonderful. It is deep. It is a comfort in times of suffering. And we need to be careful how we handle it. Because sometimes when bad things happen, we say things like, well, God has his reasons. There's a reason for everything. Everything works out for the best. And we mean well when we say things like that. We're attempting to understand. Sometimes we even claim we know the reason, not just that there is a reason, but we know the reason. So that's like when someone dies and Someone says to you, well, everything happens for a reason. God must have needed an angel. Not only is there a reason, I know the reason. God needed an angel. God must have something to teach me in this crisis, we think. What we're doing is we're doing our best. We're doing our best to make sense out of what's happened, to justify it so that we can live with it. But I just wonder if our insistence on reason if our insistence on understanding keeps us from the gifts of mystery. I wonder if believing everything happens for a reason keeps us from something that is actually better than understanding and reason. Like Christian contemplatives would say it like this, there is a cloud of unknowing and that cloud of unknowing that is where God dwells it's like there's a place beyond understanding and reason a place of eternal love that does not resolve all the questions but in the cloud of unknowing our greatest desire when we are in that place the cloud of unknowing our greatest desire is actually not answers to our questions that's not our greatest desire. Our greatest desire is a longing for eternal love, for union, for communion with God. The cloud of unknowing, you know, that's, it's beyond reason. It's a relationship with God that is not directed only by my intellect, as important as that is. It is about a spiritual union with God through the heart the soul. And in that place, God is love and God is enough. Sometimes you meet people like the whole bottom has fallen out from their life. And right there, it's all gone. God is enough. The cloud of unknowing is beyond reason. It's that place 
where God is love, God is enough, and with or without a reason for everything. Because when we are surrendered to God in that place, it isn't my need to understand that's directing my relationship with God. In a sense, like my ego, my intellect, has become surrendered to love. It is just so hard for us as Westerners to accept that, right? Like we, we think we've been nursed on this idea of like, I think, therefore I am. The most important thing about me is my rational mind. But the great Christian contemplatives of the past understood there is a love beyond understanding, beyond reason. And when I say everything happens for a reason, I'm placing reason in my understanding of things my rational mind, I'm placing that higher than the ways of God, the cloud of unknowing. And I just wonder if it keeps me from some of the gifts of intimacy with him. Because, you know, we'll say everything happens for a reason, but I think it's not just semantics to say reason is different than purpose. Can we talk about that for a minute? Reason and purpose Like, a reason implies a very simple cause-and-effect relationship that I can understand, an underlying motive that makes logical sense out of everything that happens. So reason is looking to justify every singular event in life as good and worthwhile and meaningful and significant. Like, things don't just happen. They happen for a reason. I'm just not so sure that holds up theologically. I mean, just take a case in point. Tell me responsible for cancer, an insidious disease that destroys our bodies, snatches away loved ones before their time, who's responsible for that? Is it Satan, the destroyer? Is he the one who's responsible? Is it we who've polluted our own environment, failed to care for our own bodies and souls? Is it God? God's sovereign over all things. Who's responsible? Like, it's not so easy. You think about all of the senseless violence. Who's responsible for a stray bullet flying through the air and hitting someone? Who's responsible for a disgruntled employee walking into a workplace and opening fire? Who's responsible for the annihilation of an entire people group over racial hatred? Who's responsible? Like a reason for everything? I'm not so sure. It's just too simplistic. It's not like every single thing we see, every effect can be traced back to a logical cause that we can understand. There are just too many loose forces in the universe, too many factors colliding with varied results. Think about the different factors, forces in the world. You have evil. You have just the fact that we live in a fallen world. So there's earthquakes, there's forest fires, there's tsunamis. You have another force at play, that's just fallen people. Like we, who are prone to greed and revenge and violence and unforgiveness. And then, of course, God is here too. With all these complex forces and factors at play, who is to say who is responsible for what or what the justifiable reason is for some, like one particular event? Just not that simple. 
So I would prefer we talk. Romans 8.28, it is not about reason. It is about purpose. I would prefer we talk about purpose. Like reasons are for rational creatures to understand so we can have some control. I'm going to make sense of this. Everything happens for a reason. The purpose of God creates people who, when surrendered to the purpose of God, see that something bigger than ourselves can be at play. It's kind of like there is a river that is running through the wilderness of this world. There's a river running through the wilderness that is our lives. And that's, that river is not called everything happens for a reason. That river is the purpose of God found in the cloud of unknowing. The purpose of God is not that we would all be comfortable. The purpose of God is to restore all that is broken to its original splendor, to rescue fallen humanity. And God is working to accomplish this. It's the purpose that flows through time and space and all the tangled events that make no sense in our individual lives. Here, here's, here is the difference between that. Like, people who focus on everything happens for a reason, frustrated when they cannot understand because understanding is control and, oh, we want control. People who surrender to God's purposes are able to rise above even that which is inconceivable, no explanation, makes no sense, with a resilience that is like the best of the human spirit. So you find somebody like Marcus Doe who came and spoke here a few weeks ago, and here he is, loses both his parents in the Liberian Civil War, comes here as a refugee. Inconceivable cannot make logical sense over the events that he has endured. And yet Marcus is a person who is surrendered to the purposes of God. And that has created the sort of person who actually travels back to Liberia to look for the person who killed his father so that he can say, I forgive you. What? He's given up on, like, everything happens for a reason. But he is surrendered to the purpose of God. Romans 8.28 is about purpose, not reason. Let me read it again. We know that, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. It does not say that everything that happens is good. No, it doesn't say that. It says that God works in all things, good and bad, to accomplish his purpose. God works. God works in the events of our lives to accomplish his purpose. No. When it says, like, good, what exactly is the good that God works out of every situation? We see it is to be conformed to the image of his son. So the good that God works isn't more health and wealth. It isn't the American ideals. 
it's not like if we just trust God, eventually he'll take us out of whatever we're don't want in our lives, take us out of, you know, grant us healing, reconcile every relationship, whatever that good is that we think. He may do those things. He may not. Like Paul is saying that there is a specific good that God achieves in all things for his followers. He makes them look more like his son. And it's such an interesting end there that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. It's like God is like, I want a lot of children, and I sent my son to go seek and save the lost so that there might be many children. That he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters as God is about his great work of restoring all that is broken. So it may not be that we are healed. It may not be that we are saved from physical death. Even God's own son was not spared from the cross. But the promise is, as we put our trust in Christ, we will emerge looking more like Christ. I have put on the communion table today a bunch of sea glass, because I've been fascinated lately by sea glass. You know, you can travel certain places in the world and just walk the beach and find sea glass, broken pieces of glass, or like jagged and hard, that because of being in the water for a long time, have smoothed out edges, have been conformed, have been transformed. I was thinking about that old movie, A River Runs Through It. It was based on a novel by that same title, and it's the story of these people. There's a Presbyterian minister, his wife, and their two kids, and you know, you learn about their lives throughout that movie, throughout that novel. But you get to the end of that one, and it's like, oh, it, it, what? it actually wasn't about their lives. Like, the real protagonist in that story is the river. Like, the boys grow up on the river... They do some daredevil things in their adolescence on the river. They go to college, come back. The river is the constant. The river becomes the focal point for the family. It becomes the catalyst for like everything significant that takes place in their lives. In each season, they're returning to the river, returning to the river. And there's a river that runs through our lives the purpose of God found in the cloud of unknowing. It is not that everything happens for a reason and we can understand it all and tie it all up in a neat and tidy bow. No. We don't always understand it. We certainly cannot control it. But it is there. The voice of eternal love running through each and everything we face inviting us to be conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. So I wonder if rather than looking at each event, searching for a reason, saying to one another, everything happens for a reason, I wonder if instead we might just say, everything happens, period, and God is here. In the cloud of unknowing, there is an eternal love beckoning me back over and over and over again. 
smoothing out my hard edges, conforming me into the image of his son, into the image of love, knocking down my jagged ego, forming me in Christ's likeness. Because whatever's happened in the past, wherever I find myself in the present, whatever the future might hold, God's love remains. River runs through it. And it exists, not in my understanding in my rational brain. It exists in the cloud of unknowing, where my greatest longing becomes not answers to every question, but a need for God himself. Let's pray together as we close. God, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know we want to understand, we seek control, we want to see reasons for everything. And, God, we know you're bigger than we can fathom. Your ways are higher, your thoughts are higher. Help us to surrender to the voice of eternal love. Increase our desire, increase our longing for you. Make us people who want your presence more than anything else, who want your presence more than the answers. Mold us into the image of your Son. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.